Welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensrue, and my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives. And to run for office, it literally requires you to quit everything you're doing. And, and this pays a whopping uh, $18,000 a year. Oh, wow. Don't talk about serving God until you can fulfill your hungry neighbor's stomach, until you can help the homeless guy on the street, until you can help the refugee or the prisoner or the orphan. Welcome, everyone, to episode three of the Carry the Fire podcast. I wanted to preface this episode by saying that everyone is welcome here, regardless of your political associations. I, as well as many of the guests on the show, are going to have opinions and beliefs about ways that we can do life together better. And sometimes those opinions will have political ramifications. But the show is not, and I am not, tied unthinkingly to any particular party. As much as I might lean more blue on a number of issues, it doesn't mean that I want to close down discussion with someone who might lean red for their own reasons. I believe that much of what is missing in the political discourse in our country at the moment is serious and civil engagement about the issues that actually matter to us all. So with that disclaimer out of the way, I'm actually really excited that our guest today is a political candidate, incidentally one who is running for office as a Democrat in the Virginia State Senate race. Qasem Rashid is an author, attorney, and human rights activist. He is a Muslim of a branch of Islam that you might not have heard of before, and he has a podcast with a friend where one of their goals is to remind us all that Muslims, Christians, and Jews used to get along a lot better than we seem to lately. On top of that lofty goal, the podcast also contains a gratuitous amount of dad jokes. Overall, Qasem is a big believer in the power of dialogue between different kinds of people as a means of bringing a better and more loving world into existence, which makes him a perfect fit for this show. All right, let's get into the conversation. I grew up in kind of evangelical Christian world, and pluralism was a, a little bit of a dirty word, I feel like, in that that environment. It, it ended up being used to mean some sort of uh, nihilistic, hedonistic sort of relativism. But what it actually means is a is a lively and a, a living engagement with those who hold different beliefs than you. And I see you as someone who engages in a robust pluralism. Uh, do you find that term helpful? Do you prefer to talk about it with a different language? Uh, and, and why do you feel that's so important? Sure. I mean, I think that you have to meet people where they are to help them understand where you are. And, you know... Well, the right word to do that is pluralism. Um, for others, the right word is fairness. I'll, I'll speak to I'll speak to folks who are who identify as very strongly evangelical Christian, and we'll talk about something that they find super controversial, like um, LGBTQ equality. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, look, I, I'm not going to dictate to you what your faith tells you. That's not my place. That's that's between you and your understanding of God. More power to you. But what I will say is that we live in a world where we have to interact with one another. Yeah. And we have to live together at some level. So as a basic fundamental human fairness element goes, don't you agree that someone shouldn't be denied a job or denied equal housing or equal education uh, just because they're, they identify as LGBTQ? Like, isn't it from a human fairness standpoint, what do you find objectionable about that? And more often than not, the answer is like, well, I never looked at it that way. Mm-hmm. That actually makes pretty good sense. But that, that's where I approach a lot of these conversations where people have a discomfort with those who are different than them. I'm not asking you to change who 
who you are, what your religion teaches you. But what I am asking you to do is recognize the human dignity and think about whether if, if human dignity itself is offensive to you, then you need to really reevaluate what your religion is teaching you. Because I don't know of any religion that denies people human dignity or teaches you to hate people, teaches you to look down or discriminate against people. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I, I try to find avenues where we can have these conversations and it, it can be difficult, right? Because when you're a Muslim, when you're an immigrant, when you're a person of color, people have a lot of assumptions about you and they'll make statements out of ignorance. I, I, I don't consider ignorance itself necessarily an evil thing. It's when it's compounded with arrogance or with uh, a sense of entitlement of refusing to learn. That's when it becomes dangerous, right? I'm ignorant to a lot of things. And I, I know I've said things to people that they found hurtful. But uh, what I always try to remember is that if somebody says to me, hey, that's hurtful, then it's not my job to tell them why they shouldn't be hurt. Yeah. It's my job to understand their perspective and, and build from that and apologize and, and, and build from that. So that's kind of what I ask of people that um, ask me whatever you want, share with me whatever your perspective is, I'll share mine and let's assume positive intent and move forward. And, and that doesn't mean we agree on everything, but it does mean that we rec- recognize each other better and find ways to, to find common ground going forward so rather than simply focusing on where we disagree um, recognize the far greater platforms that we have that we do agree upon and try to try to build a friendship uh, based on that. And, and, and for me, it's been a really successful method going forward. You start off your book, Talk to Me, with a story of your parents bringing you to an interfaith event, kind of a dialogue. Uh, is, was that something common when you were a kid? Is Was that, was that a big value that, that your parents were instilling in you? Yeah, and it's something that we've continued with our kids today. My my wife was invited to speak at a church a few weeks ago, and my uh, my ten year old son went with, and he also spoke. And we've taken our kids to synagogues and and, and temples, and we we want them to understand firsthand the beauty of humanity, the diversity of humanity. My parents are teachers. The first lesson that I can remember them teaching us um, was that your responsibility is to serve God and to serve humanity. And of these two, the greater responsibility is service to humanity. Because until and unless you serve humanity um, without discrimination, without judgment, uh, without restriction, then you can't possibly serve God. So don't talk about serving God until you can fulfill um, your hungry neighbor's stomach, until you can help the homeless guy on the street, until you can help the refugee or the prisoner or the orphan. These are the kinds of approaches that I take to public service that that religion, I think, is important for, for people if they want to embrace it and let, them, let that religion be between them and, and their understanding of the creator. But the only time religion is valuable to a community is when it exemplifies behavior in a person to serve that community. And that service can't have strings attached. It can't be restricted to only your own tribe. It must be for all humanity without any asterisks next to it. Mm-hmm. And so... And so for me, you know, our parents didn't just want us to uh, be exposed to our own faith community. Uh, they wanted us to be exposed to all of humanity. And that's why they took us to churches and synagogues and, and gurdwaras and, and let us experience that firsthand because there's no substitute for experiential learning. And we're trying to pass that same value on to our children as well. We have three beautiful children. And, uh, and that, that's what I bring to the way I do public service as well. I mean, I, 
I, I've said it, I'm not running for office to represent Democrats. I'm running for office to represent uh, my neighbors, the people of Virginia. And, and if and hopefully when I'm elected, um, I have zero ambition of turning somebody away just because they disagree with me or they have a different worldview than I have. That doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with everything, but it, it does mean I will equally serve my entire community because that's I, I feel like that's my, my calling, that's my purpose. That's really beautiful about what your parents were saying about serving. I've been really blessed to read from some different Sufi perspectives recently, um, and it seems like a big idea in that school of thought would be an idea tied to that where love of God and love of uh, each other are, are conflated as, as one love, really, that love of God is love of, uh, of each other, of humanity. I thought that yeah. was really beautiful. There's a, there's a great quote by the fourth caliph of, of my faith community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, where he says that if you love God, you must love the creation. If you love the artist, you must love his art. You, you, know, you can't profess to love an artist and say, well, his art is trash, but I love the artist. Yeah. So that, you know, it's an inherent kind. You can't say, I love this musician, but his music is terrible. Well, right? especially when that's and the so, only way you know them, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. And so for people who profess to say that they love God, but then says, you know, you know God hates X, I'm like, I'm not sure who you think God is, but uh, you may have missed the mark on that one. Because uh, that, and, and so again, for, you know, for me, I'm a person of faith. I have strong faith. I have strong convictions. I pray five times a day at least, as, as Muslims we all do. My biggest fear is that I'll stand before the Almighty one day and look at the way I live my life and saw that I neglected to help those who were in need due to arrogance or pride. You know, for me, a life well lived is to, is not to get too esoteric or dramatic, but for me, a life well lived is knowing that I can stand before the Almighty and say, hey, I, I, I had countless flaws. Um, there's no doubt about it. But, but the one thing that I can say with complete honesty is that I gave everything I possibly could to serve humanity um, because that's, that's, that's the only way I know how to live. And so that, I, I don't want to wait to start doing that. I want to I live my life like that. My parents you know, infused that in my siblings and I, and, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to infuse that into my kids and continue to live by that example as best as I can, despite my many, many flaws. Most people, uh, I think, are, are somewhat familiar that there are multiple branches uh, in Islam, Sunni, Shia, but I, I think most people probably are not familiar with uh, the Ahmadiyya community. Uh, I, I definitely wasn't until I started following your work. Yeah. Could you uh, just maybe speak a little bit to the uniqueness of, of your community? Absolutely. The, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um, is a community of Muslims established by a man named Mirza Ghulam Ahmad uh, in 1889. And uh, the theological difference that we have with most Muslim communities is that there's a, a belief among the orthodoxy that Jesus Christ will physically descend in the latter days and bring about some type of you know, end-time scenario. Our belief is that this man, uh, Ahmad, was that spiritual return and that he came to establish a community based on this message of love of God and love of all humanity. Um, our community is united worldwide. We're, I think, in 212 countries. We're actually the oldest American Muslim organization as well, established here in 1920. So next year will be our 100-year anniversary. And we're united worldwide under a spiritual caliph. And this caliph is a spiritual guide. What might shock a lot of people is that uh, this Islamic uh, spiritual caliphate has been at the forefront of humanitarian service for over a century. Uh, it, it vociferously condemns 
mixing religion and state and, and seeks a complete separation of religion and state, advocates for secular governance, uh, universal human rights, women's rights, gender equality, racial justice, economic justice. And it, it's these values that, uh, again, have been kind of infused in me go- growing up, that this is my purpose to, to, to live a life that exemplifies fairness and justice for all humanity. Our community is heavily persecuted in many Muslim-majority countries, and in part it's because of that persecution that my family migrated to the United States mm-hmm. in uh, the 1980s. It's also a reason why I'm, I'm grateful to my adopted country, the United States, uh, and, and why this is my home, why this is you know, my, the home for my children, the only home they've ever known, and why this you know, promise of what, of what America can be is so important to me, because I, I've I was born in a country that made a promise of religious freedom but has violated its own trust. For me, this is an opportunity to ensure here that we maintain these principles of religious freedom, racial justice, economic justice. And so the, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community here in the U.S. has, again, been at the forefront of humanitarian aid, of serving our communities, of being involved. And uh, I want to be careful because even though I'm running as a Democrat, the community itself is apolitical. It, yeah. we, you know, we work with Republicans and Democrats and independents and, and so on and so forth. But that's the, that's the gist of our community. Of course, if people want to find out more, they can reach out to me. But uh, the, the, the bottom line is that our, our goal remains to stay focused on this element of service to humanity. And, and that's kind of first and foremost. Yeah, that's beautiful. You have um, your own podcast, uh, Recite Islam. I've been uh, enjoying listening to that. And it's, it's you and a friend kind of just going through the early life of the Muslim community. Uh, I started in, I don't know, somewhere in the second season and I, I finished, now I got to go back. But it, what, what's like the goal behind what you're doing? Just trying to, to provide a fresh look? Yeah, so the idea is just to kind of create something accessible for folks to kind of understand the story of uh, of Islam from the beginning, to understand firsthand the beautiful alliances that Muslims and Jews and Christians had early on. Mm-hmm. We see so much religious discrimination and infighting uh, between people of these three Abrahamic faiths. It's a reminder that at the onset, there was actually a great deal of uh, compassion and unity between these three faith communities. It's a reminder of hey, maybe we can go back to that. Maybe we can revive what our ancestors mutually built together. And, uh, and we try to do it in a narrative format. So it's not like academic heavy. We try to throw in some dad jokes and, and keep it lighthearted and fun. A lot of Lord of the Ring and, references. Uh, we, a lot of Lord of the Ring references, exactly. <laughs> and we, we have a good time with it. It's a, it's a childhood friend of mine, Salam Bhatti. He's a, he's a poverty lawyer. Uh, so you work with people from lower income communities to make sure they have food access. We've done the first two seasons that's been on hiatus because of this campaign. So maybe we'll take up season three once we get done with this campaign. But I'm, I'm glad you've been listening to it. I'm glad you enjoy it. Yeah, it's great. I was aware of some of those connections earlier, but it's been cool to, to see it in that narrative form, I think. I think it's something that, that people are, are generally fairly unaware of, I think, at least in, in the States. Uh, I mean, especially ideas like, was it Constitution of Medina? Or am I saying the wrong? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, the Constitution of Medina. Yeah. So I mean, very, very early on, you have in Medina this Constitution set forth that's protecting people of different faiths. I mean, even setting up for non-Muslims, uh, you can have your own courts and... So that you're not under the same kind of law, like it, it's, it seems yeah. very progressive looking back. I mean, like, wow, well, how did we go wrong from this on every side of it, right? Like, sure, the, yeah, the, the yeah. Way. I mean, it's it's 1,200 years before the U.S. Constitution, the the Constitution of Medina, 
uh, also known as the Charter of Medina, was a secular constitution that guaranteed religious freedom and gender equality and economic justice. I look at Muslim-majority nations like Saudi Arabia that are a theocracy, and I ask their defenders, what are you basing this off of? There's, there's literally nothing in the Quran that validates, you know, theocratic rule. And you're, you're, you're speaking in ignorance and arrogance, and that's a very dangerous combination. But what we see from the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is when he was a de facto ruler of Medina, uh, when he was the head of state, he didn't enforce religion. He protected religious freedom. He didn't enforce, uh, you know, the fear-mongering from the right is, you know, Sharia law is coming. He didn't enforce that. He ensured that, uh, that uh, Jewish citizens had equality and representation and autonomy, both in terms of their religious freedom, their economic freedom, and in their justice system. And, and this is, I think, the part of the lessons that I, I was fortunate to learn growing up based on history and, and w- one of the reasons why now, we started the podcast to, to kind of convey that in a way that was accessible. And so for those wondering, you don't need to have any prior knowledge of what Islam is or isn't, um, because we really try to break it down in a way that uh, you could be a novice coming to the conversation and feel feel included in the conversation. So we, we, we do try to make sure it is accessible for, for people all around. There is something really unique about that foundation of Islam that the founder of the religion also was in a position of leadership. Like it didn't build later. Whereas like with Christianity, Jesus was never in any kind of position of leadership. And then so we have extensive disagreements about what uh, any kind of leadership looks like based on that. But you have this Mm -hmm. example of like, hey, this is this is what I'm doing, and it's so frustrating that still doesn't translate to like, well, hey, look back at where we were. It's one of those things where you know you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yeah. And so we have in the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, you know, he's called the walking Quran. He's called the exemplar because he lived such a unique and well documented and well recorded life that we have every aspect of it. I mean, he was uh, he was born. Uh, after his father had already died. His mother died when he was six. So by the age of six, he was an orphan. His grandfather then took care of him, who died when uh, he was eight years old. And so by the age of eight, he had already suffered three very traumatic losses of loved ones. Uh, His uncle raised him. Uh, He was unlettered. He never learned how to read or write. Uh, But he established such an amazing reputation of being trustworthy and truthful. His, His literal nickname was uh, Al-Amin, the, the, the truth. That was his nickname. I mean, I know when I was 15 or 16, people called me a lot of things. The truth was not <laughs> one of them. Right? Not many teens can make that claim. Yeah. And, and we have in his life, you know, he lived in poverty. He was a soldier. He was a general. He was, you know, a prophet. He was a philosopher, a, a theologian, a scholar. And he was a husband. He was a father. You know, he, he had children who died in their infancy. He had children who died in their adulthood. And so he, he lived all these experiences that the human condition goes through. He presents to us an example of how to behave in these situations. And for me, in the contemporary age, nowhere is that more, does that resonate more than when you read his farewell address, his last sermon that he gave before he died, where he established this principle of economic justice. He condemned usury and the exploitation of the poor. He told men, 
that women are your committed partners. You know, that, and that's, that word partner is such a key component here because when you're a partner with somebody, you're an equal to them. He said women, are, so he recognized the misogyny that, that in the patriarchy that men are prone to. Mm-hmm. And he spoke to men that women are your committed partners. You have rights over women, but they have rights over you as well. And for me, it's such a powerful explanation of, of, of the symbiotic relationship that must exist. He said that a black is no better than a white, nor is a white better than a black. An Arab is no better than a non-Arab, nor is a non-Arab better than an Arab. You are all, all equal, except in your ability to serve humanity. And so, he, he, again, he distinguished that, that, that the most noble and righteous of you is not defined by your class or your color or your, or your creed, but by how you serve humanity. And it's just like, it's, it's just this amazing summary of a philosophy of, of life that, that if, you, if you look at how the Muslim empire expanded after that, it was really due to a reflection of these kinds of, um, of values. It's that message that I hope more people have the opportunity to, to look into. And, and I think that if they do, they'll realize that there's actually a lot more more similarities than, than differences than, than, or than what they've been led to believe. Yeah. Are you doing law stuff right now as, as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I still have some legal clients. I mean, there is an interesting thing that I've learned about running for office in that there's a lot of wealth privilege involved in it. Mm. And what I mean by that is you need to have a lot of money either saved up or a, a means of self-sustainment while you're running for office. Because guess what? Your your student loan bills don't go away. Your mortgage doesn't go away. Your car note doesn't go away. Yeah. And it's uh, it's an interesting phenomenon, I'm fortunate to have support from, uh, from family, from my wife, um, to have a job where um, I don't have a nine to five work day. Mm-hmm. But it, it's made me realize that so often the people that are running for office aren't the ones who are representative of the working class Americans. Because to, to be a working class American and to run for office, it literally requires you to quit everything you're doing on the hope that you might have a chance to win this seat. And, and this is a seat, uh, by the way, the state Senate seat pays a whopping uh, $18,000 a year. Oh, wow. So not exactly something you can live off of either. So it's a really interesting concept. Uh, and there's a lot of, in the, there's, there's, it's no accident that much of the legislature are people who are independently wealthy. And that's what's allowed them to run. And uh, I think that's, that's problematic. That needs to be a, re- a reevaluation of how we approach this. Yeah, that's fascinating. So clearly you're not going to, there's not going to be a, anyone who's a career politician in that sense at the state level there, but then you have people who are career politicians at a federal level, which has its own problems, I think. Well, actually, you know, you, you actually have plenty of career politicians at the state level because it is a part-time legislature. And so you have people that have been office for 30, 40 years, you know, 15, 20 years. It brings up another interesting question. If you're working as a part-time senator or a part-time delegate, then what kind of conflict does that create with your day job? Um, let's take my opponent, for example. And, and you know, as, as lawyers, we're taught that judges are required to recuse themselves from a case even if there's a perception mm-hmm. of a conflict of interest, not, if, not even if there actually is one, but even if there's a perception of a conflict of interest, 
the integrity should be such that it isn't even a, you know questionable. Well, you have a situation where you have a politician who's heavily funded by developers um, to build to you know build more houses, build more businesses, uh, which sounds all well and good until you also realize that uh, infrastructure is out of control, uh, roads are being overwhelmed, the the sewage system is being overwhelmed, and you just have uh, these developers funding these politicians uh, to build. Uh, you know, to get approval to build, 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 build. Well, but then you add another wrinkle to it. And you say, well, who are the lawyers representing these developers in the private sector? And it turns out that it's the same politician in his day job. Oh. So, you know, his part-time job is to be the, uh, the legislator who passes legislation to help developers, um, and they fund his campaign. And then his day job is to be the lawyer who represents them in contract ne- negotiations to help them win their contracts. So if ever there was a perceived or real conflict of interest, this was it. But unfortunately, um, this is kind of what's become the status quo. And, and for me, that's uh, just an incredibly frustrating and aggravating reality because the people that win out are the wealthy, the wealthy developers, um, the wealthy politicians, and the people who lose out are the working class Americans who have a politician who is vested in the success of developers, not in the quality of life of working class families. And that's really what is the core of my message, that we need to have public servants who represent the public, not corporations. Yeah. And to that end, you are not taking money from corporate donors, correct? Not a single penny. Uh, VPAP, the Virginia Public Access Project, just put out a great report a couple of weeks ago that tabulated all the funds that uh, candidates in Virginia have accumulated this year in 2019. It breaks it down by where the money is coming from beautifully. And the two things that came out of that that we're really proud of is that 60% of our donations have come from people giving 100 bucks or less. Nobody else in the Senate is even close to us. Second place is 25%. Um, So the majority of our money, the significant majority of our money are from small dollar donors. And the second really cool thing that came out of that is that zero dollars, zero dollars have come from mega corporations for us, uh, or from businesses in general. In, in full transparency, we'll accept donations from small businesses. Uh, we're talking people with 5, 10, 15, 20 employees yeah. uh, because we want to represent small businesses. We want to make sure that they thrive. But uh, we have zero interest in representing you know, the Amazons or the Walmarts of the world. Um, they already have billions and billions of dollars and lobbyists representing them. We don't need to represent them. We need to make sure that we are fighting for working class people. And, and that's what's exciting for us, that we've been able to uphold that promise without even the perception of a conflict. And, uh, and I hope people see that. And I think they are seeing that. And that's why we're getting so much support. That's very cool. What was the, the tipping point for you to to want to get into this race? You know, I have a good friend of mine. He's actually our communications director. Azim Khan, who I think it's his quote, I'll attribute it to him because that's where I heard it from, where he says, um, and if it's not his quote, I apologize to whoever I'm stealing it from, and I'll give credit when I find out, but uh, he says, it takes years of struggle to become an overnight success. And and so for me, I've been focused on um, recognizing that until and unless we tell our own story, somebody else will tell it for us. And they'll tell it to their liking, not to the reality of the situation. You know, I was, uh, I'm an immigrant to this country. 
um, you know, came from, uh, came from Pakistan. We immigrated here 32 years ago. Uh, new country, new language, new culture, new environment, new language, new school system. I mean, a, a, a new world, literally, mm-hmm. in, in every sense of the word. And my parents are teachers. They weren't about to let us take a back seat. They pushed us to be involved, to be engaged. And, and we did, and we have been. And, and despite that, there's been struggle. Uh, you know, I, I remember growing up uh, living in Section 8 housing, uh, requiring SNAP and TANF to make sure we could make ends meet. Uh, I've been working since I was 15 years old. My first job was a union job at a grocery store. And after high school, I'd have cross-country or track practice, get home by 6, and then I'd go to the grocery store and work till 10, 11 o'clock at night and then walk home. And we just had to do it because we needed to make ends meet. And even at that time, it was one of those things in my mind that how are we the wealthiest country in the world, but people don't have enough to eat? It doesn't make any sense to me. I didn't know how to solve it or how to address it. I just knew something was wrong. Um, and then I was 19 when 9-11 happened. And suddenly, you know, the country that uh, I was a citizen of, that I, I adored and loved, and when my brother is serving as a U.S. Marine, uh, suddenly there's a question of, is there a conflict between my faith and my nation? And for me, there was never a conflict. I mean, we... We, we felt as American as anyone. And, um, and again, to, to see the demonization of people of color, of marginalized communities, of Muslims, of Hindus, of Sikhs, of Arab Christians, of anyone perceived to be, you know, the other, um, left a deep mark in my mind. And at, it was then that I began to realize that I need to play a more active role in my community, in my society. And um, long story short, uh, after getting married a couple years later, my wife encouraged me to go to law school. And that's when I began to really feel like I was more empowered to make a difference. And, and I became an advocate and I've been an advocate for women's rights, racial justice, economic justice. And it occurred to me in the early 2000s that there may be a day that I run for office. I don't know what mm-hmm. that day is or what that even looks like or whether it'll ever happen. But let me live my life as someone who's dedicated to the service of humanity. And because that's where my passion is. And if, if the opportunity should arrive, then I'll, I'll go after it. And, and for me, the tipping point, finally, to answer your question, was when the Equal Rights Amendment wasn't ratified. And mm-hmm. my House of Delegate and my state senator both had voted against it. And given my experience and my, my work for the last decade supporting women who are survivors of domestic and sexual violence um, and, and being an advocate for, for women in that extremely horrible situation, um, recognizing that advocacy uh, goes far, but not far enough. We need actual policy changes and how we, how we run this country. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I threw my hat in the ring. I, it, it's, a, it's become a joke, but it's completely true. Once the ERA wasn't ratified, I did what I think every self-respecting man uh, would do. And that is I went to my wife and I asked her permission to run for office. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and my wife, Aisha, is amazing. Um, she, she said, yeah, this is where your heart is. This is where you need to be. And, and so we made the jump. And that's what we've been doing the last, you know, close to the last year now. And uh, it's been an amazing ride. And uh, it's been everything I, I'd hoped it would be and more because it's allowed me to really uh, take my ideas on advocacy, on supporting, you know, women, working families, marginalized communities, and put them into practice. And the response has just been overwhelmingly positive. And I'm, I'm really excited about what we can accomplish on November 5th on Election Day this year. 
we're caught up in this two-party system. It's often uh, with a lot of vicious and unthinking partisanship. But in the midst of that, you've been sharing uh, a lot of stories of people who've traditionally only voted Republican, but have decided to vote for you in the, the upcoming election. What do, you, what do you attribute that to? I think that it comes down to restoring civility and decency in our discourse. Mm-hmm. There's been a lack of that for a long time. And people want to attribute it to the current uh, occupant of the White House. But I think it goes far, far before that. And it comes from a detachment. There's a number of things, right? There's, you could call it the rise of the Internet, where people are just behind computer screens all the time. and don't actually engage and interact. Um, you could call it the hyperpartisanship of, uh, of Republicans and Democrats. I, I attribute it mostly to economic injustices. I think racism has an element to it. I think xenophobia, misogyny has an element to it. But I, I think that fundamentally the, the underlying core of all these cancers is economic injustice. Um, right now, wealth inequality is worse in America than it was right before the Great Depression 90 years ago. The canyon between the haves and the have-nots is only ever increasing. And when you study how extremist groups, whether it's the KKK, whether it's ISIS, how they recruit is they look at places that are economically depressed or economically struggling, mm. and they, they go to what should be middle-class people there and say, hey, you're suffering because that marginalized community over there, they're taking your jobs, they're taking your opportunity. And it's all nonsense, it's trash, but it becomes a convenient scapegoat. And really, when you study how ISIS recruits its people and how the KKK or neo-Nazis recruit their people, it's like a carbon copy of one another. Mm. And so... My message, our message for our campaign has been that this is actually more of a rich versus poor debate rather than Democrat versus Republican debate. And the data backs it up. I'll give you some really hard-hitting data on this that, that backs that up and why it's been so effective. Um, 74% of Virginians want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. Virginia is not 74% Democrat. Yeah. Right? These are Republicans siding with Democrats saying that we, we need to raise the minimum wage. 76% of Virginians want to expand health care and, and, and believe in universal health care. 76%. 83% want to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. 91% want common sense gun reform. Uh, you would be a fool to believe that these represent Democrats in Virginia. These are Democrats and Republicans working together. And, and so our message has really focused heavily on this is the fight of our lives to make sure that people have basic human dignity, people have um, uh, a place to live that is affordable, people have decent food to eat, uh, people have a living wage. I mean, it is immoral and offensive to me that Republicans, leadership, not Republicans, but Republican leadership, the elected GOP is forcing the poverty wage at 7.25 an hour, knowing full well, knowing full well that even a married couple who are both working full-time and earning a minimum wage still cannot afford a basic apartment in a single city or town anywhere in Virginia. And yet, they want to force the poverty wage at 7.25. I mean, they are forcing people to live in poverty at the expense of millionaires and billionaires. And this is a conversation that I've had repeatedly uh, thousands of times with Democrats and Republicans. And what's really exciting to me is Republican constituents, conservative constituents realize that uh, their enemy is not immigrants, it's not people of color, it's not women, it's not people looking for, for uh, you know, to, to asylum here. It is this idea 
that we need to give more tax breaks to the wealthy and uh, and demand more accountability of the of the poor. You know, Dr. King said it best: America has socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor. <laughs> and, and that's yeah. the fundamental problem that we need to fight against. I think that's why we're having so much success in attracting Republicans and conservatives to our campaign. People have been sold this this world where the super rich somehow don't need to pay their fair share um i don't like how do you how does that keep being sold to to poor people because it seems to have been effective for a long time it's a combination of things i mean one one is a southern strategy uh the the idea that if you can convince the poorest whites that they're still better than than you know black and brown people they'll vote for you every single time Mm -hmm. i mean we know this is a real strategy that nixon used and that uh, has been used by reagan since then and it's been uh, unfortunately perpetuated throughout. Um, that's one part of it. The other part of it is you have a systemic approach over decades convincing people of this, over decades, to the point where they're voting against their own self-interest. Right now, the president wants to cut SNAP and TANA for 3.1 million Americans. Notwithstanding that last year, 14 million households in America didn't have enough to eat, he wants to cut food stamps for 3.1 million more Americans. And the lion's share of those people are lower income whites in red country who voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're fundamentally cutting out their own base, but they don't care because they've convinced them of, uh, of this idea, of this myth that if they give tax cuts to billionaires, somehow the money will trickle down to them. When I talk to conservatives, especially at the door, and they say, well, you're just trying to force this liberal socialist uh, tax policy onto us. I tell them, well, actually, here's what I'm trying to do. And tell me if you disagree. Between 1940 and 1970, America had the strongest growth of middle class in our nation's history. And this was predominantly under Republican leadership for president. Under Republican presidents, we had a marginal tax rate of up to 90, 91%. And in the 1950s and 60s, the middle class represented 65% of the U.S. population. Right now, since Reaganomics came into effect, and we've been slashing the upper, uh, the, the, the wealthy uh, tax rate every single uh, presidential cycle, and slashed it again massively under this president, now that middle class that was 65% is now down to 40%. And uh, it's only getting worse. If the minimum wage from the 1960s had increased with the cost of living, it wouldn't be seven twenty-five an hour right now. It would be between twenty-five and thirty dollars an hour right now. Jeez. There's a reason why our parents and grandparents could afford a house or afford an apartment on a single full-time income fifty years ago, and why it's laughable now yeah. to do such a, do such a thing. So, you know, when you when you look at the systemic propaganda being espoused that we need to grow the economy by cutting taxes for billionaires. It is a well-funded propaganda machine because these billionaires are investing in their <clears> own <throat> ability to keep their own money. If I have to spend a million dollars in marketing to keep a hundred million dollars, I'll do it. Yeah. If I know that if I can just convince them to not vote against me, the billionaire, but vote against each other, yeah, I'll do it. This is, this is what these billionaires are thinking. And so our responsibility, the only way we're going to get out of it, in, in my worldview, is stop taking money from these mega corporations who are only invested in their own 
profit and, and bottom line and start investing in candidates who are funded exclusively by the American people. And I've said this a thousand times on this campaign trail, I'll, I'll keep saying it. Whoever funds a candidate when he's running for office is who the candidate will fund when he's in office. If a corporation is funding a candidate, that candidate is going to fund the corporation. If people are funding the candidate, that candidate will fund people. And, and that's, that's the approach that, that we have to take going forward. Yeah. I wanted to touch back on uh, the idea of, of Sufism, which is essentially, a, it's not one a branch in Islam, but more of a, a school of thought. Is that how you would put it? Yeah, yeah, like, like, yeah, like this, it's like a mysticism philosophy. I mean, it, it actually exists in every faith tradition, uh, like, the, like the mystics, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and in Islam, they're known as the Sufis. But yeah, absolutely. So do you have much interaction with uh, Sufi writers and, and writings uh, or practices? Sure. So, I mean, I, I think that a, a lot of it has, I mean, there's, there's the, the, the famous Sufi saints, right? Like Ibn Arabi and, and you know, Jalal bin Rumi and, and, and folks like that. And so there's really no like canon of that, right? Yeah. But yeah. there's a different scholars and philosophers that you, you read up on and learn about growing up. And the idea in some sense being that there's, in any mystical tradition, that you, you have access to to God directly, that God is near to you. Are, yeah. Are there any contemplative practices that you engage in, or uh, beside? I guess you are saying you, you're praying five times a day. Well, that's that's actually. I mean, uh, it's ingrained in the Islamic core, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the, in the Quran, in the in chapter two of the Quran, God says that, and when my servants ask thee about me, uh, tell them that I am near. I listen to the prayer of the one who cries before me, so that he may be rightly guided. And so when, when people ask me, you know, prove to me God exists, as if like I can bring like a, like a baseball and be like, look, here's God, yeah. right? Um, my, my response to them is, you actually don't need me to prove to you God exists. God's promise in the Quran, it is his responsibility to respond to those who reach out to him. And, and the example given to us by the, the prophets, by the prophet Muhammad, prophet Jesus, prophet Moses, uh, peace be upon all of them. It's something very, it's worth reflecting over that they each reached communion with the divine when they had, Prophet Muhammad was in the cave of Hira for, for years on end in reflection and meditation and contemplation, seeking the divine and God revealed himself. Uh, Jesus was in the desert for 40 days and God revealed himself. Moses was in the Mount, in Mount Sinai for 40 days and God revealed himself. And so there's this process, this refinement, this spiritual refinement of attuning yourself with the divine, of reaching out to him, uh, pursuing him, and then God of his grace then will respond in a way that matters to you, in a way that is understandable. And, and the best analogy I can give is, uh, is this is how we live every aspect of our life already. If, if you want to be a physician, simply saying, okay, I'm a doctor now, doesn't actually make you a doctor. Mm -hmm. Uh, you don't get to walk into a hospital one day and say, step aside, I'm going to deliver this baby, right? I mean, yeah. you go to medical school, you, you go to college, then to medical school, then residency, then fellowship. It takes years and years and years with the chance that you might make it through and actually become a physician. You could fail. You know, you, you could go through the first 16 years of, of high school and college and then four more years of medical school 
and then, you know, th uh, three years of a residency and then fail in the fellowship, not get your license, and you still won't be a physician, despite all the effort. But that's not to say that all those years were wasted. It means you can still try and get that, uh, you know, after all those years, become a physician. And, and pursuing God is, a, is the exact same way. And, and, and so that's where the Sufi mentality takes it a bit further, um, in that if you truly want to find God, then it comes down to pursuing him with all sincerity, just like you can't slack off in med school and expect to be successful or in law school and expect to be successful. You, you can't, you know, half-heartedly pursue God. You have to be all in. And I think that's where the stumbling block a lot of people have is that, well, I have no proof he exists, so I'm not going to even pursue it. And I'm like, well, that's fine. That's, of course, your, your prerogative. But if you want to know how to know God exists, then you have the ability to pursue him. But that's still a decision that you need to make. And so, so for me, finally getting to your question, the contemporary contemplative ways is, yes, of course, praying on a regular basis five times a day. And for me, it's cathartic on a lot of levels mm -hmm. because as hectic as life is, as crazy as it is, to take 15 minutes aside or 10 minutes aside, leave the phone, turn off the computer, uh, and just reflect and focus on my needs, my concerns, and have that connection with the Almighty, um, it's powerful, it's, uh, it, it's cathartic, and it's also reaffirming, it's reassuring. There, there's a, a concept in Islam that, that also exists in Christianity and Judaism of God consciousness. Mm -hmm. of, in the Arabic word is taqwa, it's, you know, a fear of God in the sense that, you know, this accountability of God, that you should be God conscious in everything you do. In the sense that our responsibility given to us by God is to serve humanity. And so in every action you take, you are God conscious that does this action actually serve humanity or am I usurping the rights of humanity? Because if I'm usurping the rights of humanity, I'll, I will be accountable to God for this. I will have to answer for this as well. And so the, the praying five times a day keeps you God conscious. It keeps you accountable that my responsibility must be to serve humanity. And if I, if I falter from that, I have to be, I'm going to be speaking to God in a few minutes formally, and I better, I better be reflective and contemplative about what I'm doing. So, so those exercises exist. And then, of course, you know, maintaining company with people who are focused on these things is crucial. You know, the company you keep is, is absolutely crucial. Studying the Quran, studying the Bible, the Torah is, is crucial. Uh, because these are all, I think, messages and abilities to connect with the divine. But for me, honestly, um, the greatest worship for me and this is going to sound like a broken record, but unquestionably for me, the greatest worship is finding ways to make the lives of, of those around me better, mm -hmm. to end suffering, to, to feed the hungry, to, to clothe the naked, and to shelter the homeless. That's, for me, the greatest worship, and, and that's what I aspire to, to focus on as much as I possibly can. That's beautiful. I'm curious what ways you uh, best or most readily perceive and experience beauty in the world. It's one of the things that, one of the lenses we're going to look through on this show. And I think it's important in a sense because the beautiful in some way, it's not, it's not accomplishing something, but it, but it's something that, that can be enjoyed on its own, like for itself. For me, I, I run mm -hmm. and um, I love running at night under the stars because for me, it's, it's a combination of just being completely free and disconnected from the world. Uh, I, don't, I don't take my phone with me. I don't have a smart watch. I have a very basic running watch that I just uh, picked up as a habit as, as, a, as a young kid. And now, you know, as I'm nearing 40, I'm still running on a regular basis. But and then running under the stars and just looking at the stars 
in recognizing that these two stars that look like they're touching are actually trillions and trillions mm-hmm. of miles apart. Uh, there's something just awe-inspiring about it. And then, and then having the knowledge that as I look up at the night sky of the Milky Way galaxy, I'm seeing about 1% of the entire galaxy. And, and the knowledge that we're in a cluster of galaxies and that there are about a quarter billion stars in our galaxy and that there's about, uh, you know, by some estimates, a trillion galaxies out there, each with up to a trillion stars. And, and just kind of trying to grasp the magnitude of creation. Yeah. And knowing that in all that, the creator has promised that if you reach out to him, he will respond. It's in a way awe-inspiring, but also in a way depressing. <laughs> because th- there's so much out there. that We've been relegated to this tiny speck of dust, right? You know, we, 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 you know, we're not in, in a Star Trek universe where we can go and explore the galaxy or the, you know, or the, the next star over or whatnot. There's a verse in the Quran where God says that reflect over the creation of the heavens and earth. Do you see any flaw? And reflect again and notice how the universe is in complete balance. Look again, do you see any flaw? Look yet again, and your eyes will only come back fatigued, finding no flaw or imbalance therein. And so, you know, it just makes you wonder, right, that this, all this universe is out there, all this creation is out there. And, and then the verse ends that, uh, and reflect that this was not created in vain, or that this was not created by accident, that there's a purpose behind it. And, and our, our mission, you know, should we choose to accept it to quote Mission Impossible, is um, <laughs> do, we, do we pursue it or not? Do we go after it or not? And, and that's part of the challenge that I find pretty awe-inspiring. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of what, what makes me kind of contemplative and reflective on these things. No, that's great. Whenever I go somewhere that's just desolate and actually am able to see everything, I, I one, I'm bummed that I can't do it every night, but but two, I'm, I'm bummed that I feel like if everyone could see that every night, with, without all the lights, yeah. like I think it would change. The, Light pollution? Yeah. I, I think yeah. it would change the way that we lived like we're so we're kind of veiled from it so often and it's absolutely mind-boggling as you think about your place in in space it it ceases to be just the sky at that point and you you have this sense of oh i am out here among all of these other stars all of these other things i'm part of this huge thing it helps me connect to to the things right next to me too because it it speaks to that interconnectivity yeah i think that's that's a great answer I just want to thank you again for, for coming on. I want to promote all your things uh, at Qasim Rashid on Twitter. Q-A-S-I-M-R-A-S-H-I-D. Got the Talk To Me book, talking about a lot of stuff we're talking about, just this idea of how we dialogue with each other. We've got Recite Islam, your podcast, which is great. Uh, because you are, again, only raising money from small businesses and individuals, where can people go to donate if they want to support your uh, run? Oh, I'd appreciate that immensely. Just go to our, our website, costumerashid.com, and just click on the donate button. And uh, yeah, grateful for every bit. You know, we're really proud of the fact that we are only focused on fundraising from our neighbors. And you guys have come through beautifully every single time. And I have no doubt that we'll continue to fight for, for these basic human rights and human dignities that we all deserve. So, so grateful for every bit of support that people can offer. For those of you who don't live in Virginia, I don't either, but I, I do think uh, if you believe 
in these ideas that Kasim's been talking about, uh, it's worth giving to make progress towards the kind of world where everyone can support themselves, can make a living wage, um, can do all these things that I, I think are, it's sad that they become partisan issues when they're not at all, they're human issues. So yeah, that's, uh, Amen. that's why I have donated to you, my friend. And, um, I appreciate that. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. I really mean that. Thank you. It, it's, uh, I, and you know, people think that they have to donate, you know, thousands of dollars or hundreds of dollars. And I tell them, even if it's five bucks, that's a huge deal because for me, I know you worked hard for that five bucks. I cherish every single penny and I, I'm a steward of every single penny because I just, I know how difficult it was to pull together that penny and that, that penny and then part from it. Mm -hmm. So, so thank you, man. I, I really appreciate that a lot. Be well. And, uh, yeah, good luck. All right. Thank you. Dustin. Cheers. If you have a moment today, it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Uh, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CarryTheFirePod. If you want to get more involved with the podcast, I invite you to check out our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash CarryTheFirePod, where you can sign up for as little as $10 a month. As a patron, you can weigh in on upcoming episodes interact with me and other patrons, and also receive perks and special access to additional podcast episodes and content. And if you become a patron before the end of the year, you'll be added to the Flint and Steel Founders Club as a special thank you for supporting the show early on. Uh, you'll receive additional perks beyond the regular tiers, uh, including a limited Flint and Steel Founders Club enamel pin that we'll be sending out uh, when the registration stops at the end of the year. I want to thank my producer, Andy Lara, and all of our executive producers, Jonathan Clark, TJ Dween, Mark Francis, Dan Thompson, Mark Redfield, Drew Para, Colin Hawthorne, Nathaniel Bailey, Stephen Saucier, John Buchan, Denise Sagita, Paul Pratt, Mark Weiss, Brianna Webb, John Engel, Tiffany Payne, Samantha Simmons, Jordan Goodman, Luz Enriquez, Brian Weisbecker, Matt Fuchs, Jess Card, Jeremy Robinson, William Galdamez, Eric Gonzalez, Sean Weidmeyer, John Paul Diego, David Cobb, Jordan Everly, Matthew Alcon, Joshua Malera, Max Glaser, and Ron Alberca. And last but not least, sign up for email updates about upcoming guests and special show information at www.carrythefirepod.com. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time.